This is episode 484 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the most important things we can do to combat the coming apostasy, as we've shared before, is to develop an intimate relationship with both God and His Word. In essence, it's to have an experience with Him through His Word. And we do this by slowing down and asking questions of the text, just like we would if we experienced it in first person as if we were actually there. So today, being close to Christmas, we will briefly look at the birth account of Jesus through the eyes of Luke and see if some questions arise when we read Luke's words. Maybe some questions we would want to ask Joseph about the trip to Bethlehem. I mean, I've got some questions for Joseph. Do you? Then good. Let's ask them together as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. If you would go ahead and turn to uh, Luke chapter 2. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about small-time pastor and learning how to grow in your faith and learning how to study God's Word. And uh, I shared with you step one last week. I'm going to amplify step one today by taking just this passage and giving you a general idea of how to increase your study time and the probability that God will speak to you by... Um, spending more time than just reading in God's Word. So um, let me pray. Father, thank you for the birth of your Son. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. But Lord, would you speak to us now? Would you get our hearts and our minds and our affections off the tinsel and toys and just hustle and bustle of the season and back on a manger, back on the birth of a Son back on all the events, Lord, that has changed our lives. Father, would you be magnified in all that happens, and I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I have learned um, in my years being a pastor is that there's an infinite amount of truth, even just in one verse. But you can't just skim over it. What you have to do is you have to really take a look at it and see exactly what it says. And once you understand what it says, then you can figure out exactly what it means. See if God has something in there special for you. Last week, we talked about the future of the church. We talked about the church, the church as an entity is infinite and irredestructible because Christ said that he will build his church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it in Matthew chapter 16. But the entity or the institution of the church, what we have learned to accept today is probably going to go through massive changes in the times that are before us, and how is that going to affect us and our spiritual lives? And so the question is, how should I respond to the circumstances around us? A watering down of the gospel, um, church being more of an esoteric event rather than a family, a community, a body of called out ones, when the church begins to apostatize, how do I respond? When I find churches and Christians and members of my own family who claim an allegiance to Christ lining up against me because of my stand for what the Scripture actually says, how do I respond to that? The answer is found in 2 Timothy 2.15. One simple verse. And it says, be diligent 
to present yourself approved not to man, but to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you ask questions about this particular passage, who, what, where, how, how is that done, all of a sudden it begins to unfold like a conversation, like every passage in Scripture does. Statements made, you say why, the very next statement tells you why. How am I supposed to do that? The very next statement reveals that to us, because that's what the Scripture is. It's a conversation from God to us. And so just looking at some of these words, you, it's a command, you, Steve, you, Karen, you, be diligent. That's a tough word. The King James says study because of the, the application of this passage, which is what it deals with, but that's not exactly what the word says. Be diligent means to make every effort to do your best. That's what it means in English, that what it, what it means in Greek. It means earnestness. It means to strive or labor to be diligent. I'm making every single effort to do my best, and I'm striving, and I'm working, and I'm laboring in order for that to happen. Not a casual reading, not a three-minute devotion in the morning and think we're okay. There's, a, there's an activity going on here. Be diligent, you be diligent, to you present yourself. In other words, it's like we're coming in to an audience of the king or the president of the United States. How would we dress? How would we act? Would we choose our words wisely? Would we do some research on the person that we're going to be meeting with? It's kind of like in our culture today, if you need a job and I've applied for a job and I have an interview, you better find out what the company's about, what product they sell, where they're, where they're located, a little bit about the person that's interviewing you and the history of the company because you have some sort of conversation to choose your word, words wisely, to do the very best to make an impression. Be diligent, the word says, to present yourself or to stand near or stand before. How? acceptable unto God. Not acceptable to you, but acceptable unto God. And the word acceptable here means to be proved and tried as if metals being refined by fire. To be purified. To be worthy. How do we respond during tough times? Well, we make every effort to do our very best to present ourselves now and with the great white throne judgment, to present ourselves acceptable to God. Acceptable not because of the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, which brings us all into fellowship with Him, but acceptable, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, here's the hard part about studying the Bible. It makes a statement, and then you have to ask the how questions. All right, I know I need to do that, how do I do that? Well, it's, the Scripture tells us. Really simple. I'm a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How do I present myself? How do I make sure that happens, that I present myself to the Lord, someone who's not going to be ashamed? And it's, it's because I, I've learned how to rightly divide His Scripture. A worker. This is one who toils, who labors, who works. The imagery here is someone working in a 
field on a farm where they're sweating and they're you know, have this dark skin because of the sun out there. And they come home when they're done and they're absolutely exhausted. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. That phrase means it's one who is without shame because there's no need in me to have a cause for shame. I'm irreproachable. Why? Because I've been rightly dividing the word of truth. Because I understand what God's word means. Because there have been thousands of Christians who have died just to be able for you and I to have something like this to be able to look at and study, and we take it for granted so flippantly. How, how can I not be ashamed when I stand before the Lord? Because I understand how to rightly divide His Scripture. And again, what does this mean? To rightly divide means to cut or divide. It also means to handle correctly, skillfully, or to be able to teach correctly. Do you remember last week? I spoke basically to the men, and I asked you if your spiritual life and your understanding of the Word of God is to a certain level that your wife would feel comfortable to you, where biblically she should, to be able to ask you a question about God's Word. It'll never happen if you and I devote ourselves to things that benefit us in this world. Well, I'm working really hard to get my degree so I can make a lot of money and have this particular skill or that particular skill, and it doesn't work that way. Because when it comes to the things that really last, it's our understanding of God's Word that changes lives, not necessarily the amount of money that we make. Rightly dividing the Word of truth. Can't emphasize enough. Quit reading. Stop reading. You know, if you were taking a class in college, we're going to take, um, and we'll make it really easy, Art appreciation, where they go through and they show you all these pictures of the various art of the 14th and 15th century. If you read the material, you will fail the test. If you're in high school and they hand you a history book and they say, hey, we're going to have a test on Friday, and you go home and read the material. Oh, yeah, I got 1492 and 1776. Okay, I've read it. You will fail the test doesn't come from reading. It comes from studying, some diligence. I, I need to know this. I need to understand this. This is a little confusing. I wonder where I can find the answer. Oh, the answer is over here. I'm going to take a little time in order to, to be able to, to study this and understand it. You go to college and you get a, five, a course that's worth five hours. You know, And so that means that you have to, they assume that you'll spend five hours a day for every hour of the course in order to be able to understand what it says. And we put that time in because we care. We don't want to fail, except when it comes to spiritual things. And then we don't care because somebody else will do the heavy lifting for us. And our wives and our children, speaking to men now, will not look at us as spiritual leaders, but that's okay because as long as I'm looked at as some sort of political leader or financial leader or they exalt me at work because of all the hours I put in, I'm satisfied with that. And at the end of our life, we're failures, biblically, failures. When I was young, you know, we're working in the CPA firm and the goal was to have a corner office at a big window rather than the closet that they stuck us all in when we first started, to have my name on the door, to start my own firm, because that's really important. And you know, you blink and you're 65. 
And the machine just rolls on. And then you look back on your life and your kids are already grown and now they have grandkids. And you, what did I instill in them of value? Well, hard work. Because that's what I did. I worked hard and we took good vacations. Of value. Of lasting value that they can pass on to their children. It's this. It is this and nothing but this. It's not reading. It's more than that. It's studying. It's asking questions. It's expecting God to speak to you. First, to be able to understand what it says, and that may take a little work on your part. And then, what it means. And once you understand what it says, this is exactly what the word says, then God will show you what it means to everybody, and especially like a rhema that he's given to you. But it takes time. Well, I have my 365-day Bible, and I read it all through last year. Well, whoop for you. I check it off my, uh, my to-do list, and I read the Bible through. Do you remember much about it? Well, not really. Did you just skim over the parts that you didn't really understand? Yeah, because I had to go ahead and read my two chapters of the Old Testament and one Psalm and one Proverb and two chapters of the New Testament, and I want to hurry up and get through and check my agenda off because somehow I've done something this year I never did before, which is great. You're heading in the right direction. But unless you study it and understand it, it's pointless. It's pointless. It's not a book of facts. It's a living, breathing, inspired Word of God that He left with us to literally change our lives. Now, here's how it's done. This is, this is from last week. I want to kind of flesh it out a little bit with you today. How to study the, God of, the Word of God. Number one, slow down. Stop. It's not a race. Just relax. What Karen did this year... As I passed out this Bible reading schedule last year to give us some sort of format that we can kind of go through the Word of God. And Karen is, what, six months behind? Seven months? She's in July. And she's having a marvelous time. Because she's not just reading. She's studying. And she's got her Bible study book, and she sits at the computer, and she's looking up some, some words, and she's got her Bible there, and she's having the time of her life. She just finished Ecclesiastes. And it was so amazing. When she finished, she came up to me. She says, that's an incredible book. Read it recently? I read it, but I don't remember much about it. Something about, yeah. You know, it's an incredible book because she's taking time. And she had to go through this mental thing where she fell behind probably January 3rd. You know, fell behind. You know what? I don't have to have this agenda. It's not about me trying to cross something off my bucket list. The goal is not to read it through so I can say, well, I've done it this year. The goal is to read and study and be diligent and do my very best in order for God to speak to me, to change me. So take your time. First of all, give it some time and take your time. And you read over a passage several times, and I like to read them out loud. Because when I'm reading them out loud, I'm sounding the words out, sometimes rather poorly, and I am listening to the Word too. I'm not only hearing God's Word, I'm reading God's Word, I'm seeing it with my eyes, I'm processing it with my brain, I'm speaking it with my mouth, I'm hearing it with my ears. It helps. It allows me to emphasize certain words. I'm able to stop and listen to myself say, what does that mean? I wonder how that relates to this. What do these words actually mean? 
Sometimes you emphasize the words, and as you emphasize the words, it begins to, to make more sense to you, kind of like a conversation that you're having with someone. And then you wait, just wait, and these questions will arise, and the text itself will begin to answer to answer those questions, and you will find that your Bible study gets to the point where I'm looking forward to reading it because God will now speak to me rather than I want to hurry up and get this over with so I can do the things that I want to do that make my life pleasing to me. So we're going to, um, we're going to try that today. We're going to just do it briefly because I, I don't want to spend more than about 15 minutes on this because I've got something else I need to do with you. To look at this birth narrative that I just read to you, the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. Let me show you what a Bible looks like that has been studied. This is mine. I don't even know if you can see that. Poorly. Let me get a closer one here. This is this text. Uh, every time I read, I use a Pentel. I just did that for my days being a CPA before computers. You always use Pentels because you made mistakes, ink would kill you. It's really simple. I don't know if you can read that or not. I have questions, and questions just kind of crop up here. So right here, you know, in the house of David, which is called Bethlehem. How did the house of David be called Bethlehem? Betrothed wife. Well, I've got the Matthew account here that lets me see it from that vantage point where it's called his wife, but betrothed wife is like an oxymoron, an engaged wife. I don't understand that pretty much. Then I go down here and I see swaddling clothes, but I also see swaddling clothes down here, and I've got those connected because that, that has to be important. And then I see these shepherds out in the field, and I see the angel of the Lord not speaking to you and I, but speaks just to them. The shepherds living out in the field by night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you, new, not, not everybody, but you, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign not to everybody, but to you. And I've got those connected because what's happening here? Then I look and I see in verse number 15, it says, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing. Thing? A th what, what do you mean a thing? When I think of thing, I think that could be pretty much anything. This thing that has come to pass. Well, what does that word even mean? And then I go to verse number 18, and I see things. Verse number 19, Mary kept all these things. Verse number 20, for all these things that they had heard and seen. I'd like to know what that word means. And when I do look up that word, I find out that the word that means, that's translated things in verse number 15 is the same word in verse number 17 that's translated sayings. I have things, sayings, things, things, and things. What is the Lord saying here? What's going, on? What's going on here? That interests me. Now, this is just the way I do it. You may do it differently. This is Karen's Bible. Karen uses a color system where certain colors mean certain things. And Karen doesn't chain a lot of these. Let me go ahead and get a little closer here. Chain a lot of these together like, like I do. 
but she has on hers, she has certain dates that she's written in. She understands how long Joseph and, uh, and Mary went and, and talked about what a betrothal means, a note of her about a binding oath. And, and she has these notes that she writes on the side to allow her to be able to, when she reads it, to understand it just a little bit better. So when I look at Karen's Bible, and I asked her yesterday if I could take a picture of this, if I look at Karen's Bible, I say, you know, this is a woman who studies God's Word. I can tell by just looking at her Bible. What does your Bible say? Well, I, 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 I don't want to write in my God's Word. Okay, so where do you write? I mean, when God speaks to you, what, what do you do? Do you, do you make a little notation? Do you, do any, when a prayer is answered, where do you note, notate that at? It's okay to look at His Word. Let me please, I don't want to sound like a dinosaur here, I have a smartphone too somewhere. But you cannot do this on a Bible app. I rented this movie last night called Small Groups, and it's a Christian comedy. And it's really just a, a parody of our culture right now, and it's really sad. The pastor stands up there in this rather large church with the praise band, all that kind of stuff. He goes, open your Bible to Matthew 7. And then the camera switches behind the congregation. And all you see is the phones come up and the tablets come up and the computers come up. And, and okay, that may make it easy for us. I have 17 translations on my phone right now. Yeah, but can you circle a verse? Can you make a notation? Can you offer a prayer? Can you... Can you look at that page and see tear stains on it where God moved in your life so mightily over something that was happened that you were crying and weeping over His Scripture? Sometimes technology is wonderful. and Sometimes technology makes things easy for us that are not supposed to be easy. Make sense? So, I'm just looking at this passage. I'm just going to read it over and I, I see some questions that just open up to me. And this is what I would do if I was looking at the passage the first time. I've already read it once. I would probably read it again, and I would read it out loud. Because when you read it out loud, sometimes you hear things that, that you don't necessarily hear when you're reading in your mind. And I would try to get a, a view of what God is trying to do, what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph, and just asking questions as if I was having a conversation with them. Mary and Joseph came in. They're sitting right here. They've got baby Jesus with them. They're telling me the story of his birth. They're telling me about leaving Nazareth. They're telling me about the travel that it took. They told me what happened when they got to Bethlehem. And I would basically just ask some questions, like I do whenever I'm having a conversation with you. Hey, why did you do that? I mean, did you ever think maybe this would happen? I mean, what was that like? When, uh, when you showed up there? and Did you not phone ahead and use Priceline and get a hotel room? I mean, how did this actually turn out? Where did you stay? Because the Scripture doesn't say. The scripture doesn't say if it was out in the open field, it was somebody's backyard, if it was uh, in a stable, in a cave. All it says is that they took Jesus and they laid him in a feeding trough of an animal because there was no room for him in the end. What was that inn like? Was it like a Motel 6 or was it like a, um, a Hilton? Was it, I mean, what was it like back then? We assume because of some of the passages in here, but nowhere does it say that, uh, that Jesus was born where we assume he was. We make that inference from the fact that he was laid in a manger. 
So I'm just, I'm reading. I'm asking Joseph and Mary some questions. I'm asking the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. What are you doing, Luke? Well, I'm setting the scene here. I'm giving you some historical context. It's kind of loose. It's not, uh, it's not as tight as it is in Matthew when we find out exactly when Herod was when the wise men came. But it's a macro view. This is an overall view. Again, I'm viewing this like a movie where all of a sudden, you know, this is the picture of all the world, picture of everything going on, that God moved on the heart of a pagan in Rome to be able to fulfill his will and his desire in Palestine. And then it just zooms in. We're not talking about Rome. That's, that's another story for another day. We're not talking about Caesar Augustus. We're not talking about all those kind of things when this particular person was governor over Syria. What we want to focus on is this lonely couple on this trip heading from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so it zeroes right in from a macro view to a micro view with verse number four. Joseph also, also, means there were many others that were doing the same thing, and Joseph has joined that throng. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Well, I remember my map, and my map shows that where they were was north, and they traveled south down to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is about four or five miles outside of Jerusalem at that time. But it says that he went up. Joseph went up. I, I don't know. That just interests me. I've circled it. I'll have to look at that later. And, of course, the whole idea, if you want to know what it means, is everything in Jerusalem was based on going, everything in Israel was based on going towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the highest elevated place at that time. The, uh, the height of Jerusalem was... Um, about 2,500 feet above sea level. In Nazareth, it's about 1,200, 1,100 feet above sea level. So actually, the scripture is correct. He was actually traveling from a lower elevation, even though in my mind, you go down when you go south and up when you go north. Do you ever think that way? It's not the biblical way of thinking. It's wherever you are, you're down and you're going up towards Jerusalem. Out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, which is called Bethlehem, because he, David, was of the house and the lineage of David. Um, the city of David is not called Bethlehem. The city of David is called Jerusalem. It's Mount Zion is where he ruled and reigned. Why would Luke call it the city of David here? You can see where he ruled and reigned in 2 Samuel, but you also find many instances in Scripture where David was born in Bethlehem. And so it was the city of David. It was where he was born. And 2 Samuel 19 calls it that in a couple other places. So David is going, or Joseph is going back home in order to be registered. Verse number five, with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, we already talked about the fact that it's an 80 or 90 mile walk. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's from here to Columbia. That's kind of a long way to walk. Not in a car. I mean, I, I don't even like driving it. It's not in a car. We're walking. We're walking on barren 
ground. We're not walking on paved highways like we have now. We've got Mary on a donkey, which is not the most comfortable place for a pregnant lady to be walking, uh, to be riding. And we're going 90 miles. It'll take a week to 10 days staying out in the open countryside. Not necessarily. There's not McDonald's and, and hotels on every single street corner. That, that's, that's, that's a rough trip. When they get to Bethlehem, all of a sudden she gives birth. So she has to be at least eight months pregnant, would she not? Why in the world did you take her, Joseph? I'd ask that question. Why didn't you leave her home? Why couldn't she stay with her parents? I mean, they were taking care of her. You could have gone. You could have gone quickly. You could have registered. You could have come back. Maybe if you got this really fast horse, you could have been back by the time she gave birth. Maybe she gave birth a couple weeks early, irrespective. She's eight months pregnant. Because when she gets there, and maybe a lot of it was the, the ride that caused that, if you want to look at it from a physiological standpoint, rather than a God's sovereignty kind of deal. But when they got there, there was no room for them, which is bad planning on your part, Joseph. And you took your wife with you. Why would you do that? Would you have advised Joseph to do that? But he did. Why? I don't know. Was it because Nazareth was no longer a safe place for her? That there was a lot of scorn going on, that maybe her parents didn't even want the, the stain of this illegitimate birth taking place in their house because they didn't believe the story that now Joseph believed because the angels met with him? Is it the fact that, no, I love her so much, I want her with me? Because when they get to Bethlehem, if you think about it, this is the, this is the Luke account, when they, which talks about the shepherds. If they get to Bethlehem, and Matthew starts talking about the wise men, the wise men come 18 months to two years later. And they're no longer living in, with a manger. They're actually living in a house. And when they come to Herod, they said, you know, we want to know where this baby was born in the star that we saw a long time ago. Well, we're going to kill everybody in that town two years old and under based on the time that the star came out. So this is months, maybe a year, year and a half later that it takes place. So they didn't go back home to Nazareth. They stayed in Bethlehem. Why, Joseph? What was it like? Did Mary have to go? Did she want to go? Did you not want her out of your sight? Did God speak to you about that? These are questions that I would ask it, wouldn't you? You ask it as you're just looking at the Scripture. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, and his promised, espoused wife, who was with child. And so it was while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were complete for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in an animal feeding trough because there was no inn for them, or no room for them in the inn. But Joseph, where did this take place? Was it in a manger? I mean, was it in a, like a stall or stable? Was it in a cave like Jerome thought it was? Was it, was it out in the open field? Because it could have been. Because they had feeding troughs out there, surrounded by maybe some trees or something, or a clap of the rock. I mean, where was it? Was it in somebody's field, somebody's house, where you were outside with the animals? I mean, where was it? All the information we have is there was no room for them in the inn. And at the same time, it says that there were 
in the same country or in the same field, shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And this amazing event takes place. Angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. What was the glory of the Lord surrounding them like? And if you're studying Scripture, you'll go back and you'll look at the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 24. When the glory of the Lord shone around the Israels at that time, with Shekinah glory came, and how the people were frightened, they were petrified because of this. Matter of fact, the word greatly afraid means just that, terrified, petrified. And so I'm, I'm just slowly going through this, and I'm beginning to, to circle some words. Verse 10, Behold, I bring you, not them, you, an individual angelic visitation to a bunch of shepherds. I bring you, Good tidings, a great exhortation of great joy, which will be not just for you, but for all people. For there is born for you or to again you this day, right now, while I'm proclaiming this to you, the babe is being born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And just so that you'll know, this is a sign and a testing miracle to you, shepherds. And what is that? That you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. There's an assumption here that they're going to go look. You will find that. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God and the highest on our earth, peace, goodwill towards men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us, as a group, now go to Bethlehem and see this thing, here's that word, which has come to pass that the Lord has made known to us. This is one of the things I wanted to know what it meant. So I looked up the word thing that's translated here. Thing. And the word means a word, a statement which was spoken. It means something that was proclaimed. The thing that they're talking about, that's the same definition every time it's used, the thing they are talking about was the enunciation of the angels about the birth of Christ. Let's go see this word that was spoken, this statement that the angels gave to us. That has it come to pass? Verse 17, same word. And when they had seen him, they made known widely the saying or the thing, the statement, which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things, this statement, this angelic event and how it was fulfilled, which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary kept all these statements and these words and these proclamations that were made and these testimonies um, and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things, same word, they had heard and seen as it was told them. I'm not going to have time to really even do this justice. But it's a story that we all know. We've read it over and over again. But when you stop and start looking at it and trying to figure out exactly what's going on here, it literally 
allows the Lord to be able to speak to you in a profound way. Well, I have my manger scene. And in my manger scene, I have Jesus, who's always laying with a halo with his hands like this. And I have Mary and Joseph, who are, you know, pristine in their appearance. And they're kind of on either side of the manger. And they're giving homage to the Lord. And then I have these shepherds on one side. And then I have these wise men on the other. And the star and the angel at the top. You ever seen stuff like that? Well, that's the Luke account and the Matthew account that's kind of melded together in such a way that we can sell more figurines. But that's not how it would happen at all. At all. I mean, if you were a shepherd and you came and you realized that the Messiah was born and you saw the Messiah as a babe, how could you go back to shepherding? How would your life not be totally changed? I mean, I wonder the same thing about the wise men. These magi come, these wise men come, and they come a couple years later and or a year and a half later, and they see the Christ child, and they bring these gifts and these offerings to them, and then they pack up and go back home? How is that even possible? And you and I, you and I have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and we've experienced the forgiveness of sin that God has provided for us, and yet we rock on with our life like it is nothing. How is that even possible? to just skim his word rather than mining it for everything in here of truth. Amen? Well, it is Christmas time, and I want to end our time together by letting you see a visual representation of what I've just read to you. This is from Dallas Jenkins, who is the director that has created The Chosen. Anybody watched it besides me? A hundred times? What happened to Dallas Jenkins, in case you uh, don't know the story, he uh, was hired to do a um, Christian movie, and he did this Christian movie, and it was terrible. I mean, it was really bad. And his career kind of tanked, and the critics didn't like the movie, and he realized his life was over. He didn't really know what else to do. He happens to be the son of Jerry Jenkins, who's the author who wrote all the Left Behind books. And so uh, he didn't know what to do, so his local church was having a Christmas celebration, and they asked him on a guy's farm in Texas if he would put together a video, an 18-minute video of the birth of Christ so they could simply show at this church. And he did, and it is as spectacular as the chosen is and from that point on God resurrected his career and I don't know about you but I've been incredibly blessed by everything I've seen in the chosen so I want to show you this 18 minute video to kind of close our time out together to let us see possibly from his perspective and I happen to agree with it completely maybe what this was like for Mary and Joseph not pristine beautiful people but rough people who've been traveling for 10 days in the open countryside, coming and finding that it was time for him, for uh, her to give birth. So let me set this up for a second, and we'll close by watching this. This is actually what they call the pilot for the chosen.